Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to go do a quick recap and finish off the discussion of what we were discussing last week and then move on to tonight's topic. So last week, if you remember, we were talking about the holiness and the sanctity of the rooms on top of a shul. So we said not only is the shul itself holy, even the shul, the rooms on top of the shul are holy as well. Um, now, in that discussion, let's see, give a moment. So what we've been talking about is, um, we've been talking a lot about the sanctity of a shul um, and how shuls to be respected, etc., etc. What can be done in a shul, what can't be done in a shul, eating in a shul, all that stuff. And last week we started to talk about how not only is the shul itself holy and therefore needed to be treated with a proper respect, but even the places on top of the shul are also treated and need to be treated with respect. Why is that so? Because just like in the Beis HaMikdash, in the, 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 the mikdash itself, right? So our shuls are called a mikdash ma'at, called a small shul, small mikdash. But the original Beis HaMikdash, the, uh, what we call the gagais valiais, the, the roof and the upper stories were holy. Um, they had a, a degree of sanctity and therefore only certain things could be done there. So to in our shul is the same thing. The upper floor on top of the shul also have sanctity, just like the Beis HaMikdash. Now, the question was, how much sanctity do, do these rooms on top of the, of the shul have? Is it like the level of Kedusha of an Azara, like the courtyard of the Mesamikdash, which was a lower degree of sanctity? Or was it on the level of the Heichal, like the, the, uh, the main holiest part of the Mesamikdash, which was called the Heichal, where the Kedusha was, etc. So is the upper story um, considered like the upper story of the Heichal, or is it considered like the upper story of the Azar? That was the question. Okay, now if you recall, we brought that the Maharam, who was a famous Ashkenazi Paisik, was very much in doubt about this. First he wanted to, he was positing maybe it's just like the Azara. So it's a lesser degree of sanctity. But then he said, no, maybe it's like the Heichal, maybe it's as serious, it's as, as holy as the Heichal, and therefore he felt that really nothing, um, definitely nothing permanent, or nothing degrading could be done on top of a shul. And this was his doubt, and, and therefore we would obviously be, go, be more stringent. Now, we also mentioned that there was a tshuva of the Rambam, a response of the Rambam, which is found later, after the Shulchan Aruch had already been written, um, where the Rambam clearly wrote, and you can actually see this inside your books if you'd like to see it, um, It is on page 25. It is source 60. So we're clearly talking about a place where there's an apartment on top of a shul. And there's parts of the apartment which is directly on top of the shul, parts of the apartment which is not directly on top of the shul. So it says like this. So if you're looking at 60, page 25. It's not so clear. It's like Rashi letters, so I'll read it. It says, Tshuva, this is the answer. Yachol Lodur Babais. You are allowed to live in this apartment even though it's on top of the shul. Aval HaMokamasher Al HaHeichal But directly on top of the Heichal, on top of the Arun Kodesh, Lai. And you can't sleep there as well. Lai Niyakle Malachte. 
but the rest of the apartment, not directly on top of the Aron Kodesh, Yasser Kritzainai, you can do as you like. And he signs off uh, in, you know, in uh, somewhat, somewhat poetic language, somewhat humble language, he says, because of Moshe. This is what, what Moshe writes. Who's Moshe? The Rambam. Rambam's name was Moshe. So this is his answer. So we see the Rambam clearly was very lenient about this. Now the Chidah, the Chidah, Chaim David Azulai, who was a famous uh, a Sephardi Paisik, he traveled the world, he saw all sorts of communities, a very famous person, he wrote many books. He wrote that had the Shulchan Aruch seen what the Rambam wrote, he would, he would have for sure passed in like the Rambam, and therefore we can follow the Rambam. To be makel, to be lenient about sleeping on top of a shul as long as you're not directly on top of the way the Aron Kodesh is. Now, this is kind of the Sephardi Psak. The Sephardi Psak is that we only really concern ourselves with the floor above, not more floors on top, just the floor above the shul. That's what we're, we're, we're concerned with. And also, we're only really concerned with the area on top of the Aron Kodesh. The rest of the thing you don't have to be worried about. Now, the Ashkenazim, though, is a lot, a, lot more, a lot more strict. And if you wanted to, last week we mentioned the Taz, that if you remember, the Taz, which is a, a piercing the Shulchan Aruch, was very, very strict about this. He felt like this has to be taken very seriously. And he even added a personal touch to this, if you, if you recall. Um, do you recall the, the Taz, how he, why he felt so connected to this? So we could actually read this inside. Uh, take a look at 62, source 62. It's on page 26. And uh, I'll read it. If you don't have to look inside if you don't want. I'll read it out, out loud. He said like this. Um, so he says in the middle paragraph over there, Kol Khan, the Dover Hamos, So I was obviously talking about having a bathroom or something like that on top of a, of a shul. He says, certainly over here, um, something like this blocks and is a, a, a problem to have on top of the shul. It's, it's a problem. It, it almost blocks the tefillos which are happening below to go up to heaven to have this type of place on top of a shul. And this is where he adds his personal thing. He says, And when I was younger, Taz lived very old. I think he lived to like 90 or something. He lived in Krakow, Poland. In base Midrashi, with my family. In the base Midrash, in the base Midrash, which is on top of the shul. And this is the heavy stuff. And I suffered greatly by the death of my children. Yeah, he lost, unfortunately, a bunch of his children during that period. And I pin the cause for this as being lenient and lax on this area of halacha of living on top of a shul. Now, of course, this is a little bit intense. Um, but as we know, tzaddikim judge themselves um, and, uh, on a little bit of a higher ca- caliber than the rest of us. And he obviously viewed it that way. But whatever, whatever the case is, this was something that he held very strongly to. And based on this Taz, who is a foremost Paisik of Ash- Ashkenaz, we are quite strict about this. So basically like this, if you would ask, uh, yeah, let's say you, uh, there's a building in your Shalayim, you're staying in the Waldorf Astoria. And the Waldorf Astoria shul in your Shalayim is in a certain part of the hotel. And your room is on top of there. So if you're on the third floor, two floors above it, Svarty Paisik would say you don't have to worry about anything. 
If you're directly on top, you're on the second floor, well then, on top of the, uh, the Aryan Kodesh is a problem, otherwise, you're okay. And Ashkenazi Pesach would say, probably better idea not to, to avoid it. But the reality is, is that there is, um, today, the minig is to be more makele about this. And the reason is, is because, you have, to, you have to remember, the whole idea of building many stories high didn't really exist so much back in the day. And therefore, okay, you don't have to live on the second floor on top of the, on top of the shul. Most places were only two or three floors, one can imagine. Whereas today, you have very tall buildings, and that's really how they live. In a place like Eretz Yisrael, where there's so little space and so packed together, how do people live in, in, in tall buildings? Without giving, if we don't have that option of being able to live on top of a shul, where most, most buildings have a shul on the bottom floor, it would be impossible to live. And therefore, the minig has become to be makel in this regard, especially since we have the Rambam, we can be, we can be makel. So that's kind of the, the approach. Ashkenazi Pesachim would probably be a little bit more strict about this, the Sephardi less so, um, but that's kind of the, the look at it. So tell us in Lachim, what do they actually do there? I mean, are there rooms right above the children? Yeah. I would assume there is. And? So it's like, it's like, a, it's like we're saying, that since the... Exactly. So it's far more of a more lenient approach, and also the fact that um, in today's day and age, the way things are built, it would be impossible to to have a situation where you don't have anything on top of a jewel. If, if so, therefore the the minute gets to be more difficult. Do you count the position of the Aaron Kodesh? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, David, you're you're coming back from Mercy Stroll, right? Yeah. So just pause for a second. Okay. Now one more discussion. Um, about this respecting the shul, the upper floors of a shul, etc. We're going to talk about the roof of the shul. So there's an added element with the roof of a shul which is something to be a little more strict about. And that is that the roof of the shul is visible to outsiders. So if the roof of the shul is being used with, for something which is completely disconnected and, and maybe contrary to, to what the shul is about, it, it disrespects the shul. And therefore, um, some of the Israeli rabbonim said that one put, shouldn't put like antennas or phone, you know, stuff on top of a shul because that's again not respecting the shul the way it should be. Um, others point to the fact that if you get, if, 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 if let's say the government is paying for it, it's almost like they acquired that part of the building, so it's not really part of yours. Whatever the case is, but it's just something to be aware of. We usually think of respecting the shul as in the, the, the place of the shul. Really, it's the whole building because the roof of the, sh of the shul is associated with the shul. And therefore, it too needs to be treated with a proper respect. Another interesting thing to think about is Aravis on, on uh, Hashanah Rabbah. So on the last day of Sukkot, we take Hashanahs and part of the thing, we whack them on the ground. And then what do you do with them then? You don't want to leave them on the floor because people are going to step on them and then you're stepping on something which a mitzvah was done with. Um, so what do, you, what do you do with them? So many people put it on top of the Aron Kodesh. But is that respectful? You're taking these whacked up leaves and stuffing them on top of the Aron Kodesh. Is that correct? So interestingly, the Rebbe did not do that. The Rebbe would leave the Aravis in the shul. Um, I would assume he didn't leave them in the middle of the floor or else you, have, you run into that problem of, of stepping on them. But the Rebbe would not put them on top of the Aron Kodesh, which is kind of interesting, something that many people do do. Um, 
Now, some people point to the fact that besides for the additional element of, of people not stepping on them, there's also another reason to put them on top of the Aryan Kodesh, which is that base, back in the base of Migdash, the Hoshainus, which is they, they would walk around with these Hoshainus, that's the whole ceremony, was done around the Mizbeach. The Mizbeach in the, in the courtyard of the base of Migdash. What would they do with Aravis after that ceremony? You put it on the Mizbeach. So we too, we do it around the Bima in Shul, so we similarly put it on top of the, the Aryan Kodesh. So basically some have upheld this custom. Some people have held that this is an incorrect custom to do. Whatever the case is, it's where it's done is done, and that's fine. But it's something to be aware of that uh, part of the problem that could come from this is the uh, possible disrespect that comes um, from a shul when, when that's done that way. Okay. So this kind of closes up this discussion about respecting a shul and etc. Now we're going to move really to um, a discussion of times, times of davening. Um, it's going to be interesting because it's very practical for us. Um, we daven every day, and we need to know um, when's the earliest time to daven, that you can daven, when is it too late to daven, is it ever too late to daven, can you, you know, sometimes you walk into shul and you see somebody davening shacharis at uh, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, is that, does that make sense, is that fitting? Um, also, we do so many things together, right? We do shema, we put on tefillin, we wrap out, uh, we, we, we do uh, 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 talus, we daven. So like all of these different things are happening together. Can, can they happen independent of each other? So even if, let's say, it's past the time of davening, can I put on tefillin, right? So all of these things, it's important to kind of understand them on an individual basis that we, we know how to handle them. Okay, so let's begin with the times for shacharis. When are the times for shacharis? Um, when is it too early, when too late, etc. Okay, so just to kind of preface this whole discussion, let's begin by explaining that there are really four different halachic kind of times um, which are happening in the morning, um, which we need to think about in this discussion. Or not, not just really in the morning, early morning. So obviously, um, shacharis is the morning, morning prayer. So it needs to be done in the morning. When is morning? When does morning begin? So what do you think? The rooster crowed. When people get up. Who's rooster? <laughs> when people get up. It's what time is that? Morning. <laughs> what time in the morning? Sunrise. Sunrise. What's, what's sunrise? That's the question. Right. So what's, what's considered sunrise? Ah, so we're, so we're getting somewhere. Okay. So sunrise, you, you would roughly translate as just the sun comes up from the horizon, right? Could also say um, it starts becoming light, but it starts becoming light even before the sun comes over the horizon. So basically, all of these factors come together to say that there are basically four times that play a role here. There is what we call Alois Hashachar. Alois Hashachar is when light starts to come up from the horizon. Still, it's not like the sky is bright. It's just some light coming over the horizon. Then there's something called Heir Pnei HaMizrach. The eastern horizon now is lit up. So if you look to your west, it's still going to be dark. But on the east, where the sun is rising from, 
starts to um, you know, become light. Then there is Mishayakir. This is what you're talking about. Mishayakir means when you're able to see your friend from four amas away. Four amas, four uh, cubits, which is probably like me to David. So if you're able to recognize somebody, the light that's so light that you're able to recognize somebody four cubits away, now, how much that ex- exactly is, there's certain measurements of time that we can give for this. But the, this is the term, Mishayakir, once you can recognize somebody from four, five, four cubits away. So what do we have so far? Number one? A little bit of light. A little bit of light. What's that called? Amud Hashachar. Amud Hashachar, the day light is start, started. Amud Hashachar. Next was? Heir Pneha Mizrach. Eastern sky is illuminated. Number three is? Four Amis. What we call Mishayakir. Fourth and final stage is Neitz Hachama. Neitz Hachama means the sun has risen. It's come up over the horizon. How much of it? All of it? The ball of the sun, yeah. The whole whole thing or just it's like peaking? The whole sun. sun. So what does this look like practically? Timing-wise. So I, I... actually went into today's Zmanim, and I'll tell you, okay? So today, Alaysa Shachar, or Shachar, whatever, which we said the first is this first age, what we call dawn, was at 5 a.m. Now, next stage um, is... No, we skip, we skip the second stage. I'll tell you why soon. But third stage was what we call Mishayakir, right? Um, that is 5.35, 35 minutes later. And then Neitzachama is 6.28. 50 minutes, yeah. So from Alois HaShachar, Till Neitzachama is an hour and a half. So depending on what we consider morning, it's going to be a big difference when you can start davening shacharis. Because imagine, if we're going to go after Neitzachama, you can only have a minion that's from 6.30 onwards. Many people want to have a minion 6, 5.30. You know, people start the day early. Not you. I don't even know these times existed. <laughs> so, so what is it? These are the four times we have to kind of take into account. Okay, so let's open up to, let's take our uh, source uh, pages over here, um, and let's see uh, what the Mishnah says about the times for dying. So let's do source number one. Uh, This Mishnah determines the times beyond which the different prayers may not be recited. According to the rabbis, the morning prayer may be recited until noon. Rabbi Yehuda says it may be recited until four hours after sunrise. Okay, so one opinion says noon, one opinion says four hours. Why? Why do they have their opinions? Very simple. We know that the prayers that we say correspond to what was done in the base of Mikdash. So in the base of Mikdash, they had the sacrifices. Today, we don't have the sacrifices. Our prayers are a substitute for the sacrifices that they had back then. So the morning Shachris uh, davening corresponds to the Tomid Shel Shachar, the constant offering that was brought every single morning. When was that brought? Well, 
it was brought early morning and it was brought until, according to one opinion, four hours, according to another opinion, chatois. So what do we basically see? That it's corresponding to the times of the Tomich al-Shachar, what was done in the morning in the base of Migdash. So the Mishnah only mentions the late ending time for Shachris, which is four hours of chatois, but from it you can derive, if you look at the Masechta, which discusses the Tomich al-Shachar, look over there, and that tells you when the Tomich al-Shachar was brought. And we're going to see soon in the Alter Rebbe, but I'll just tell you now, that the Tomich al-Shachar technically was meant to be brought early, early morning, um, you know, Amr al-Shachar, the earliest time, but since it's a bit shaky, sometimes you can confuse, you could think it's already morning, but really it's not, so therefore, it was brought at Neitzachama. So the time for Shacharis is Neitzachama. Got that? So the ideal time for Shacharis is right by Neitzachama, right when the sun comes up. Ideal time for Shacharis. Until... I've never seen that happen before, so I don't know. <laughs> until um, four hours of Chatzai, as we'll, as we'll see. Okay? So what are we seeing so far? Um, so, so the, the one opinion is it's still noon. This is the ending time for Shacharis. Oh, this is ending until, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. And the other one's four hours after, which today would have been a 30 minute difference. You said sunrise is 7.30. Sunrise, Netzachama was 6.30. 6.30, so an hour and a half. Hour and a half, yeah. So that's the fourth stage we're talking about. Sunrise, yeah. And it's four hours after the, that's the earliest you can do it. So sunrise is the ideal time to Davin Shacharis. Now, four hours from then is the ending time. You can't do it after noon. What do they mean by noon? Do they mean like noon? Or do they mean like halachic? Halachic noon. So basically, in halacha, every, every, um, it, what we call, we have something called shazmani. So every day is made up of 24 parts. But what we do is we, we say the evening is made up of 12 hours, meaning nighttime is made up of 12, daytime is made up of, tw- of 12. Now, obviously, in the summer, daytime will be a lot longer than nighttime. So we take the day and divide it into 12 parts, not divide it into 12 parts. So Chatzos will be smack in the middle of that time. So six hours into it. Now, it's not going to be six hours the way we know six hours, because the daytime may, might be 18 hours, right? So it will be nine hours into the day instead of just six. So today, that would have been one thirty. Yeah. Let's, I mean, so that's, I could, a, that's a big difference. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. I mean, let's look right now. Oh, do you have this man in front of you? Yeah. Um, I just want to see if we're using the same. What? I'm what? Using Chabad Using Chabad I'm using. What do you have? One thirty. I have one thirty-four. Yeah, so I have one thirty-five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then it says the latest shachrit. Yeah. Eleven eighteen. Latest shachrit according to yeah, that, and that makes sense. When it says latest shachrit, does it mean you have to be done with shachrit in eleven Oh, we're gonna get there. Okay. Gonna get there. Um, but that makes sense because it's four hours after um, sunrise. Now the question is, why is it not exactly four hours? Oh, that ma- that makes sense too. Because I'm talking in codes here. Um, sorry. So the, my question was, what do we say? Four hours, right? Yeah. But now, if Netzachama was what time today? Six thirty. And so Isman Tefillah, we just said is end time for davening is. We said 11, 11 12. Noon. noon. Right. Four hours. No, no, not noon. Four hours. Four hours. 
is 11.12. Well, that's not four hours. From 6.28 till 11.14, it's not 12 hours. Because of the 12 parts. Oh, exactly. So since it's not exact hours, it's 12 parts. So the hours in the summer are slightly longer than an hour the way we know it. So therefore, four parts after 6.28 is going to land up 11.14. Does yours tell you how many the parts are today? No. Oh. no. I think yours does. So, um, how many parts? Well, my times are a little different. It says summarize 6.49. Yeah, but it should still. Yeah. I think mine tells um, me the parts. It might be 72 minutes. Does that make sense? Let's see, 72 times 4. Uh, 71.1, according uh, here's to my time. Proportional hour is 68 and 19 minutes. What is that? Sh 68. Zamanis. That's exactly it. Shaw's money. 68 minutes and 19 seconds. Okay, there you go. Mine says 71.1. <laughs> what are you going back and back? Mizmanim. Zamasan Zamanim. Are we supposed to Ah. <laughs> I mean, we just dive in chakras when we get to it anyways. So, you know. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do is let's read through some of this, uh, these ideas in source number two, which is from the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch. So, Jeff, go for it. All right. So, uh, the men of the Great Assembly ordained that one should pray three prayer services, providing 18 blessings every day as the patriarchs prayed. They established two of these services, the morning and afternoon services, as obligatory, corresponding to the two mandatory daily offerings. The times for the prayers correspond to the times for the regular daily offerings. The time for early morning offerings offering begins at dawn, which is when the light from the sun first begins to glimmer in the east. This precedes sunrise. By the time it takes to walk four mills, nevertheless, um, the Kohanim duty would wait and not offer the sacrifice until the entire eastern horizon was well up as far as Hebron, because it once happened that the light of the moon rose and they mistook it for the light that begins to glimmer in the east at dawn. Uh, the time for the morning prayer, therefore, also begins at dawn. Nevertheless, as an initial preference, it is a mitzvah to begin with the rising of the sun after its appearance and not beforehand, as it is written 16, they shall fear you with the sun. Right, so we see that since it says they shall fear you with the sun, means the time of prayer, which is that time, is with the sun, when the sun rises. So technically, from already dawn is when we could say it's time for chakras. But ideally, we do it based on this on this verse, we do it once it's Netzachama, once the sun has actually come up. Okay, now we do find that in, the, the Gemara brings a story about a person named Avod Shmuel, the father of Shmuel. And he, um, when he was in a rush, he was traveling, so he would daven um, early, after Alois, after dawn, and he wouldn't wait until sunrise. So similarly, we're going to see that uh, the altar of Paskins is a similar way that if a person is in a pressing situation, so for many people who, in the winter, um, you know, Shachras is going to be super late, if you're going to wait till Neitzah 
So you want to do an alois, meaning you want to do something before an eight. So the author Rebbe says that somebody who is in a pressing situation can do that. So let's see that in number three. Uh, David? In a pressing situation, such as when a person is ready to set up on the journey to make so yeah, the, yeah, those numbers are just uh, footnote, footnotes. Yeah. Before he sets out, the writer's drawn already enables him to recognize the print of this of four cubits. So it is time to start the Shema. He starts to start the Shema and his blessings. There's no reciting the blessings of Israel in direct proximity to Shema Israel. So let me just explain that because it's not so clear. There is another element um, that when you daven, you're saying Shema, right? You're saying the brachas before Shema, and after Shema, and Shema. So if, when you daven shachas every day, after Yishtabach, you have things leading up to Shema. Are we familiar with this? You have the part leading up to Shema, then Shema, and then the part leading up to Shema Nasri. That whole thing is called Birchas Kriyashma. The blessings of Kriyashma. Those things are not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about over here is the Amida and the parts, you know, before Yishtabach, where it's just like songs of praise, Pesuk of the Zimra. That part after Yishtabach and Tulshman Esrei is what we call Berchus Kriyashma and Kriyashma. That has its own special time, which begins Mishayakir. What was Mishayakir again, remember? Mishayakir is when you recognize. That was the third time, where you're able to recognize somebody for four hours away. So the time for Shema and Kriya Shema and all that is from Mishayakir. So it's later? Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, when we daven, we do it all together because we don't daven that early. But technically, if a person's davening after Alois, after dawn, but before Mishayakir, so let's say a person was davening at 5 o'clock this morning, so it's not yet Mishayakir, but it's after Alois, such a person would not be able to say Shema or that whole part after Yishtabach. He would have to say it later. So would he because it's not time for it yet. Say it anyway and then just no, do it he later? Wouldn't, no, you can't say it. it. No, you can't say it. You would skip it, do the Amidah, and then later do it. So the Alter Rebbe over here is talking about a person who's in a rush. And so the, so, so, uh, the person who's in a rush and he's not going to be able to daven later. So you're allowed to daven after Alois. If possible, try wait until Mishayakir, so at least you can do Shema then. And then the additional, now, now why is it important to do Shema during davening? Really, they're not connected, right? There's davening and the Shema. Wow. But really, there is a, 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 we prefer to do them together because what do we say right before Shema Nezrei um, on Bashachris? Uh, What's the final, that blessing that we say before Shema Nezrei? Gal Yisrael. And we, the Chazal understand that there's a, uh, uh, there's a special preference to put the idea of Geula, of the redemption, to put it together with Tefillah. We call Mismach Geula Tefillah. To put the mention of the Geula, of the redemption, together with Tefillah. Um, I don't remember exactly why, where that comes from, but it's an idea that, that when we, we try to bring the Geula and Tefillah together. So therefore, if it's too early to do Shema, you're not going to be able to mention Ga'al Yisrael, which is the Geula, which is the redemption. So you're not going to be able to put it together with davening, so you're missing that element. So the best option is to wait a little bit until Mishayakir. Does it make sense? 
Good? So this is what the Alter Rebbe is talking about over here. Um, okay. Now, there are many shuls which have something called an alois minion, which is that they daven early because people want to go to work. Um, so what did they do and how should they do it? So basically, what, depending on what time of year, they're going to want to start you know, at, at an early time. So it's possible that it's going to be that early, you're not even able to put on your talisman filling yet. You put it on after Yishtabel, right? So one option is that you start and time it that you're going to get to Yishtabach right by Mishayakir, because Mishayakir is when the time when you can put on your talis and your tefillin and say Shema, right? So time it that you'll get to Yishtabach right at that moment, or at least you'll, you'll wait a little bit then, and then put on your talis and tefillin, and then continue with davening. Another option is you put on your talis and tefillin before davening. It's, too, it's still too early to really make a brach on them. But put them on, then when you get to Yishtabach and it gets to the time of Mishayakir, then touch them and say the bracha. Do something special to them. You're paying attention to them now. It's as if you're putting them on now and make the bracha then. You catch that? Those are the two options. Either put them on once Mishayakir hits in the middle of the avening. Skip the bracha. No, do the bracha then. Oh, oh right. You'll do the bracha then. Okay. Or... Put it on before davening, and then when you exact skip the bracha, and then when you come to Mishiyakir later, you'll say the bracha then. Those are the two uh, suggestions. So again, best to daven after nates. If you, meaning after a sunrise, if it's going to come out too late, you can start before alays and time it that you do your talis and your tefillin and everything once Mishiyakir hits. So just to give our example again, for today, um, Mishiyakir was... 5.35. So you could start, how long does it take to get from the beginning of davening till Yishtabach? 15 minutes? Maybe, yeah. Maybe 10. So start davening at 5.20. And at 5.35, you can go and, and put on tefillin, etc. Okay. That is all um, about putting on uh, the times for the beginning of davening. Now, um, we have... Two more minutes, so let's begin the next part, and we'll, we'll finish it off next time. Okay, so now, we had an argument in the Mishnah. When is the final time for davening? Um, is it four hours after uh, sunrise, or is it chatzos, uh, or is it midday? So who do we pass in like? The answer is that we pass in like Rabbi Yehuda in the first instance. So one should try, one should endeavor to uh, daven before four hours into the day, which today would be 11, 12. Um, now, that's what we consider the time of, of for Shacharis. If you miss that, then you can still daven until Chatzos. Until Chatzos, you can still daven Shacharis. It's not considered like you fulfilled the mitzvah of davening Shacharis on time, because we pass in like Rabbi Yehuda. So we consider that you missed the time of Shacharis on time. But since you haven't hit a new time for davening, right? You haven't hit Mincha time yet. So we still allow you to daven Shacharis in that time. Okay, so best is daven before 11.12, but you can still daven between 11.12 and 1.30 today, was Chatzais? Yeah, I would have both. Yeah, exactly. So you have between 11.12 and 1.34 to daven Shacharis. 
it wouldn't be considered like Yudav and Shacharis on time in, the, in, in its time, but it would still be considered like Yudav and Shacharis um, because the time of Mincha hasn't hit yet. Yeah? Why do we pass in like Rabbi Yehuda here and not like the rabbis? So Tanakhama does not necessarily mean rabbis. Tanakhama just means the anonymous Tana of the Mishnah. Um, the, the translation of the word Tanakhama just means the first you know, authority mentioned in the Mishnah. Doesn't necessarily mean Maravas. Before Maravas. Um, yeah, that doesn't, right. it's not necessarily, yeah. You find, sometimes find in the Gemara, the Gemara will say, Man Tanakama. Mm-hmm. Who is the Tanakama? We'll give a, 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 a Yachid, we'll give an a, a, a individual. So it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, okay, now, does that mean that a person needs to be um, finished by the time that time hits? So by 11 12, you need to be done, Damida? Yes. The Alter Rebbe says, you do need to be finished by that time. Um, you can't have started. You need to be finished Amida by that time in order to consider as if you davened within its proper time. But the, um, the Aruch HaShulchan um, takes issue with this and he says that not necessarily do we consider um, that time when we say that it's until this time, that not necessarily we consider it like, okay, this is it and therefore, you know, if you go... If you, if you start, then it's not counted. In his opinion, you start, it's already like, it's, it's you know, you got it on time, even if it continues later. Um, and he brings up interesting proof to this from the story of Bilam. Remember the story of Bilam? Who Bilam was? Mm-hmm. Bilam was the famous um, non-Jewish prophet who tried to curse the Jewish people in the desert. And uh, his blessings turned to, cur- to uh, his, his, cursing, his curses turned to blessings. Rings a bell? Mm-hmm. One of the famous uh, stories in the in the, in the in the in the Torah. So anyway, so he he had a special power to curse that his curses would would be fulfilled. So the Gemara says that Bilam had a special ability. Was his special ability? He was able to time when Hashem's midah um, uh, of gvura, when Hashem's attribute of, of severity was was being you know uh, uh, was being employed. And at that moment is when he used to say his curses, because at that moment, Hashem was in severity mode, and therefore his curses were able to, to, take, to take hold. Take a look at um, source number four. Cover. Um, how much time does his anger last? God's anger lasts a moment, and no creature can precisely determine that moment. So basically, Bilam was able to time this. It's a moment. It's a, it's, a, it's a fraction of a second. Bilam was able to time it. Now, do you think Bilam was saying all his curses in that fraction of a second? Obviously not. So what did he do? He timed it to start then, and it would continue. So Ar HaShulchan says, Aha! What do we see from here? That just beginning something at a certain time is considered, even though it continues later, we bring it back to the time that it started. So to here, when a person starts davening, we're talking about Damida here, a person starts Damida before the end of Zman Tefillah, let's say today before 11.12, even if it extends later, it's still considered like you did it on time based on that. Now the Alter Rebbe doesn't seem to pass in that way. It seems to say that the entire davening needs to be finished before um, 11.12. Um, this is an argument, how you, how you uh, uh, pass in this regard. Okay, we, we're going to stop here and we'll continue next week um, more discussion about this and end times of davening and what happens if you miss chakras and, of course, 
um, why some people are not as serious or don't take this as seriously. And if that's okay, we'll continue next week.